Welcome to The Marketer's Journey, a podcast that delivers real conversations and fresh perspectives from senior marketing executives who share the journey they've taken and the buyer journey they create. And now here's your host, Randy Frisch. Welcome to The Marketer's Journey. Let me tease for you what you're gonna hear from Sean Ahmed, my guest and the CMO at CloudBees. Now, CloudBees is a fantastically successful company, recently valued over a billion dollars, becoming a unicorn, and a team that is really scaled as well, going from 18 people to 60 people. The person in charge of that is Sean. And what's unique about Sean is, for one, his career. He's been both a marketing leader as well. He's been a CEO, both starting companies, coming in to turn around and sell companies, and now he's in a seat where he's able to bring ideas he's seen at different scale. And the one we dig deepest into is the idea of a pod and organizing your go-to-market strategy whereby each pod understands a different buyer. In the case of CloudBees, they have different personas at the top of the funnel. And Sean talks about how approaching the top of the funnel is so different than the bottom. And the need for segmentation there and personalization is really what can set you up to win and close more deals. A great episode for a new perspective. Here's my chat with Sean. excited to talk about your journey. Let's start with how you decided that CloudBees was the right opportunity for you to take on a CMO gig. Oh, uh, good question. Uh, you know, what attracted me to CloudBees was first and foremost, its leaders. A lot of people that I had tremendous amount of respect for that I'd seen do some phenomenal things in the market before. If you're familiar with, you know, folks like Sasha Labore from JBoss, you know, Christina Norum from Splunk, you know, Francois Desharay. There was just a lot of people here that, you know, I had looked at from afar and said, wow, these folks have serial entrepreneurial background and experience and done some wonderful things. But most importantly, not just a success in terms of what they did for the companies that they worked for, but uh, the kind of success they brought to their clients and customers and users of the products that they built and brought to market. I mean, Splunk as an example for Christina Noren is is a, a brand that almost anyone today is is familiar with. JBoss the same way. And I thought to myself, these are people that, you know, I'd love to work with because they've created really great product in the past. The second thing was just the space that CloudBees is in, right? Um, I think it goes without saying that the the world has been going through in the last 25, 30 years, a a digital transformation unseen like any other transformation. And there's all these, you know, traditional business models that are out there, traditional companies that have delivered products and services that are finding and having to change their business model to be software first. And so it's like you're a tractor manufacturer. What does that mean for a tractor manufacturer to to be a software first company and, and your commercial bank. And, you know, Randy, you and I go to the bank all the time, right? And, and maybe in our early days, we went to like a, a branch office down the street because we got a deposit and check. And now it's like, 
You and I are probably not, I mean, I haven't been to a branch in years. Everything and everything is on my phone or a browser and the banks have to reinvent themselves. And, and it's interesting, you go through those, those traditional industries and you see like what kind of transformations they have all had to go through as they become software first or become traditional business model plus software. I think of that as the digital transformation. That's dead on. Yeah, it's exciting. I mean, I to your point, I evaluate a lot of my purchases with how will I interact with this? Yeah. And, and that's anything from as simple as my running shoes, because my running shoes are as part of how I go for a run and track with my Peloton. You know, I'm waiting these days. You know, the one thing I, I can't believe I still can't do, and I'm sure there's a model that does this, but I, I really want to control my oven. Like if I could preheat for French fries <laughs> before I came home, uh, you know, the you know, GE would have me or whoever it might be. I, I want to come back though to your choice to take this opportunity on. And, and you hit on a word when you talked about some of those great leaders as being entrepreneurs. Uh, and if you look at your career, there's been no shortage of taking the entrepreneurial opportunity sometimes over just a job. You've been a CEO on two accounts, helped companies exit. So when I come back to deciding to be a marketer again versus finding a company as a CEO. How did you deliberate between those two paths? What a question. Um, it's, it's, it's such a great question, Randy, because to me, that's such a intensely sort of almost a visceral answer that I would have to give you. And, and it begins with risk. It begins with risk. Um, you know, I could tell you about an experience in my early days first to answer that question. I had this opportunity to meet with uh, a mentor who became a friend and is a friend 20 years later today as well, Doug Merritt, who spent you know, multiple years as CEO of Splunk. And I met him in the CEO before his Splunk tenure at SAP. And I thought it was absolutely fascinating human being. He had the ability to take technology and distill technology down to its, its most fundamental core tenants, express the go-to-market, and express the sales motion and the value proposition to consumers. He could take the most complex business and explain it and repeat it back to you in less than two minutes. He had just a commanding control. And I spent months thinking, I wonder how he built that experience and I found that it was likely because he had such a diverse set of experiences as well. He had been a marketer, he'd been a CEO, he'd been an entrepreneur. He'd ex sort of experienced the whole business sort of continuum across each one of these various departments. And that's where the risk came from. And I told myself, how do I learn that? How do you become that person? How do you learn all of these different things? You, know, you can sit on one side and say, I know... I'm a product person, but I, but I think I know what marketing does. But you don't really know what marketing does till you become a marketer and you see it from the inside. And that's kind of the risk I took when I left SAP and became a first-time CEO. I remember my wife and kids looking at me going like, wait, wait, what are you going to do, Dad? What are you going to do, Sean? I'm like, yeah, I think I need to go back to the basics. Like, I have had a great career at SAP, but I got to learn more. And I got to understand the business cycle more. And that's when I made my first 
decision to go become employee number one, start my own company, raise my first seed round, and drive the company to its first Series A. And it was, it was thrilling. And I learned so much in that process about myself, what it meant to be a CEO, the types of decisions you had to make when you engineer the product versus when you have to sell the product to how you message it. And I got that business continuum. And then I call that period my golden period of time. Was it financially successful for me? Oh, gosh, I got to tell you, I hated those <laughs> nights where I had to make choices about, oh, gosh, I got to make payroll. <laughs> no, say, does it? You know, like I'm not going to pay myself right now, but I got to pay my my team. And, and, and you made some tough choices, but it was in those moments when you went from being employee one to landing your first deal. And I remember it so succinctly. It was an $80,000 deal. And I and I remember coming back with the invoice and the uh, and the purchase order actually from the customer for, for the product we had built. And I thought about the journey from like building a product to having a hypothesis about the product to what it meant to sell it, build it, and how to message it, and then finally get it across the board and what it took to get that company to where it was. I got to tell you, that $80,000 deal meant more than any million-dollar deal that I had been a part of at SAP. Millions of dollar deal. Those $80,000 were like amazing. My journey is unorthodox, full of risks along the way, but ultimately I learned in that process that there's critical pieces that you have to learn about the business across the board to be a phenomenal marketer and successfully bring product to market. And and I decided then that, you know, marketing is is my path, product is my path. These will be the paths that I will take. It's what I enjoy the most. But I do believe that I became a better marketer, a better product leader because I had spent time doing other things as well and learning the the, the ropes uh, across the business organization. That's it's a fantastic answer. I, I I admire you for just being able to reflect like that. And I recall myself, uh, some of the businesses I ran before even starting Uberflip, you know, one of them I referred to the three, four years that I was running it as a better education than my MBA, right? You know, you learned more, you were put in tougher decisions, and, and it forced you to think outside the box in ways that you would never have been taught in school. So just one last question here before we take a break and, and kind of coming off of those learnings as being a CEO and then dropped into a company the size and scale and growth of CloudBees. And for those who don't know much about CloudBees, you, your team is essentially the name in DevOps scaling at an amazing rate. You became a unicorn in the last year in terms of valuation. So there's a lot of good things going, but one of them that I'm intrigued about, and I'm curious how you brought your experiences to it, is your marketing team has grown from what, 18 people to 60 people? That's how right. Do you, how do you make those decisions weighing the realities of everything that you've learned as to what is important? All right. Well, first of all, we had to we had to make a decision, right? I, I call it managing funnels. Um, you know, companies grow and, and companies will have different products that they will build. And it's so important as a marketer to understand, you know, the, the fundamental value proposition of the products that you have, that you're selling. Who are you selling them to? What value do they generate for them? But you have to stretch it further. 
you have to also say, if you've got different users, you've got different buyers, how do you reach them? They might not all be in the same you know, place to consume the information and they might not be targeted in the same way. Everything from like the language you use to talk to them through uh, any number of different channels uh, will be fundamentally different. So my experience from having, you know, been CEO before, built different products and noticed what, what a big difference it is to talk to a multitude of different audiences, differences between when you're doing B2C marketing versus business-to-business marketing, multi-product type, you know, companies versus single product, single user type companies. I realized that we need to scale marketing to be able to be relevant and micro-targeted which is when we realized, okay, we got to grow this marketing team because we're going to end up essentially managing multitude of funnels. So that had implications on, well, how do you build the organization? What does a modern organization for B2B marketing with multiple products look like? Well, you know, we went on a round and I talked to Doug, I talked to a number of other people that have done this in the past. And we arrived at a, a what I think is a pretty modern organization but also kind of surprising to many marketers, I split up things like demand gen separately for top of funnel management and from field marketing for middle and bottom part of the funnel. So I had two different organizations, two different leaders that manage that in a very different way. And I have to give it up to Pat Slavin, who's who's is one of the leaders on my team, built a kick butt, you know, marketing operations organization with a strong analytics function, uh, digital marketing function. Um, with paid advertising and so on and so forth that and email marketing that he put up, which, which was phenomenal. And we kind of focused on the operations and process, making sure our, our, our entire sort of operating system for marketing works end to end. We set up a corp comm function along with it as well. And, and we pulled in product marketing because there's multiple users, multiple buyers. We've got end to end funnels that are going to be managed differently. So we need the messaging to be on point from the top of the funnel down to the bottom of the funnel. We need different tools and product marketing uh, did a phenomenal job. People like Marissa Shimway, who, who runs that here at CloudBees, has been a phenomenal, phenomenal leader. Um, you know, Jeannie Talbot on corporate marketing that's put together some amazing teams and the work they do is amazing. So that's how we kind of had to grow. And now the next phase of that was, well, grow it fast because we got to grow fast. Right. <laughs> well, I feel like on that, Mark, you are teeing up the second part of our combo. We're going to take a break here on the marketer's journey, and then we'll be back to dig into how you go to market with these various funnels right after this break. Want to improve the buyer journey for your customers and your prospects? Look no further than our presenting sponsor, Uberflip. Named a leader in content experience by G2 and a leader in content activation by Forrester, Uberflip will help you accelerate every buyer journey by creating bingeable experiences that will allow your prospects to consume more content faster. Companies like Trimble, Wiley, and 3M are using Uberflip to power their go-to-market strategies, and we created one just for you. Head to uberflip.com journey to see how Uberflip can help you leverage the power of personalized content experiences.
Sean is not the first guest I've had in the last while who's been in the CEO seat in addition to being a CMO. And I gotta say, that provides a whole other perspective. I encourage as many of you as possible to get that opportunity. Now, you may not become the CEO, but even becoming the general manager of a business area, it gives you different perspectives. You have to make these tough decisions. And Sean and I talked about some of those. I referred to it being my best education was being the general manager or CEO of a company. In that seat, you have to make tough calls about cuts that are not just in marketing, but span beyond the company and allow you to come back to that CMO seat and look at the company more holistically. That provides huge value to how you make some of the toughest decisions as a CMO. Sean, before we took a break there, you outlined how you scaled your marketing team, tripling it. But more importantly, you talked about this element of different stages of the funnel requiring different strategies. Can you expand on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, let's take the product side of it. You know, first, let's begin with that. As a company, CloudBees has products that appeal to a multitude of different personas. And one of the things that we had to... Uh, you know, contend with early on is that we just don't have a single um, way of reaching out to our customers. You know, you probably have had guests on air before that have talked about, you know, traditional product-led growth motions versus, you know, your enterprise growth motions and business users versus, you know, more technical users. And the reality was, you know, CloudBees is the same way. We have developers that use our products. We also have shared services and operations folks that use our products, but they use them in different ways. So now the question is you need to get their consideration, right? You have to get their consideration for us and you want to get unfair share of their attention towards our product. And that's kind of a tough funnel motion for us. So we realized early on that the channel at where we're going to hit them and meet them and the messages we're going to give them are going to be different. That basically meant to me as a marketer that I, I had to have different types of campaigns at the top of the funnel compared to other users and how those channels would be very different. So as an example, we found that, you know, business performance, uh, business users and shared services performed very well on a channel like LinkedIn. Okay. We found a lot of people that would, if we advertise there, we put our messages there, D-Zone and things like that. If we syndicated around um, these areas, we'd get these business owners' attention. And they'd come to our website from those channels after reading, you know, three-minute reads or excerpts or an ad or something like that. And they come to our website. Great, we got some top of channel. Now we can nurture their journey. But guess who you didn't find on LinkedIn? Not a lot of developers coming from LinkedIn. Just, you know, you couldn't give a business message. They'd be just ah, here comes another marketer, here's they're just marketing to us. And we learned that developers, in many ways, like to be helped be more productive, be more efficient tools that they can use to do the job that they love to do, which is to create and code. That's what they want to do. So you had to get to the product much quicker. We had to market to them and help them be productive through a completely different channel, which is our product itself. So it's like... Yeah. Well, how do you put the right content into the product itself so that if somebody wants to trial it, they want to log in and just go in and see what the fuss is all about. 
How can we make them productive with our stuff? How can we give them a delightful experience in our product in two to three minutes as they arrive in there? That could be anything from like how to get started article to like a welcome video to a click here video or maybe a tutorial or a wizard and so on. We have to understand as marketers our journey inside of our product to make sure that we help them at the very key times. And is that marketing? Yeah. You're, you're making a user. You're making a user fall in love with your product. It's joint product and marketing for sure. But that is that is an example of of a completely different top of funnel as a trial experience versus getting somebody top of funnel from LinkedIn. Different users, different methods. And the funny thing is that sort of difference is not just top of funnel, but it it, it continues as you move through the funnel all the way through closing a, a, a relationship with them as a customer. And so you have to continue that journey. That's an example, Randy, of what do we mean when we say, I have multiple funnels and I have to manage multiple. No, that makes a lot of sense. I'm, I'm curious and I, I've got two questions. I'm going to, I'm going to stay at the top of the funnel first, but then I want to, I want to come to the bottom of the funnel before we run out of time here. But at the top of the funnel, do you have multiple teams thinking about different buyers or are you tasking the same team with figuring out how, how do you target these different buyers? Great question. Yeah. So we definitely have them by product and buyer and persona. That's what we have the teams by. So we have different campaign managers and we've implemented a pod structure uh, over here. So we take key shared services across marketing, bring them together with the campaign managers, and they sort of manage that top of funnel together from an email marketer to a digital marketer with a ops person, with a product marketer, with a campaign manager. And they get together in a pod weekly. They work on the campaign tactics. They deploy those tactics out there. They analyze the results of those tactics. They say, hey, we need to move something. We got to do something a little bit differently. Put this lever up a little bit, throw this one down a little bit, that type of stuff. And they constantly have the ability to do full circle on a weekly basis. We've gotten our analytics down to a T. So uh, yeah, we, we use a so let me bridge to the second part of my of my question, which is talking deeper down the funnel. Now, what I'm I'm curious about is you have these different pods, as you've described, that are going after different buyers, as you said, different needs at the top of the funnel. Do you feel that those can converge at the bottom of the funnel? Can you tell more of a consistent story once they're at a certain stage of that buyer journey? Or do you need to continue with different pods at the deeper stages? Um, that's a great question. There's definitely a little bit of convergence, Randy. There is at the bottom of the funnel because sometimes even if you have different buyers and journeys, they're within the same organizational structure, let's say, for instance. So depending on the deal size and so on and so forth, there might be a convergence at some point that somebody has to chime the check who now owns the responsibility across multitude of different users or teams. So that does happen and, and we're no different. So what we tend to do is, we tend to do this is we call it our state of the unions. That's what we do here uh, at CloudBeast, you know, on a monthly basis, or sorry, quarterly basis, we have a state of the union where each one of the various pods presents their findings about bottom, middle, and top of funnel. And we go through and figure out where some of those convergence points are and the pods collaborate on how to sort of bring the deal close. And there are certain tactics that you can release at the bottom of the funnel that goes across these pods. We don't split the pods up 
and, or merge them in at the bottom of the funnel. We still keep a very straight pod structure through the entire funnel for the team that's responsible from top to bottom, but there are tools that they can use in common at the bottom of it, things like BVA calculators, you know, sort of like business value, or um, my favorite one, which is, um, you know, customer references. We've got a kick butt customer reference program here. So we have a lot of customers that have a lot of materials that they've recorded for us and used for us just when we need to tip that scale over the close from like evaluation cons- true consideration to a close. I like that quarterly uh, coming together the teams. And that's that's maybe my last question though, which is there's a lot of benefit that you're describing of having these different funnels for the buyer purpose. Does it create silos though within your organization? And, and ultimately, how do you bring everyone together to ensure that you're aligning on some sort of consistency in the messaging as much as you do want it to be personalized? That's the risk. So yeah. that's the risk side of this, this equation. I think this type of architecture or product, uh, I would say mark, marketing architecture or organizational structure is, is expensive. Well, can be expensive. You manage to your expenses, of course, but it's, it's not a ton of reusability here all the time. So, so when you create a new funnel, the first thing anybody will ask is, okay, are we creating a pod for this? Um, or is one of the existing pods taking on this new campaign? And that always becomes the question, and we always have to go through the evaluation of whether or not it's entirely different from something we're doing before or it's close enough to what we're doing before where one of the existing pods can leverage a lot of the existing tactics, content, you know, extend basically what they're doing. So so that's that's sort of an evaluation process on a quarterly basis we have to go through, and, and it's a risky one because... Like I said, it's an expensive one. Um, but when you have a funnel that is different enough from each other, it happens to be the best model that I have seen so far work for us. That's great. It's, it's, I appreciate also how candid you are about the risks and the opportunities. It comes back to you being a CEO and having to weigh those. Uh, we're going to take a break here, Sean. We'll be back with a few more questions for you in rapid fire format. I really enjoyed hearing Sean walk through the idea of having pods that can focus on different go-to-market strategies. And it reminded me of the framework I talk very often about, which is the go-to-market framework, all around the idea of identify, attract, and engage. And those first two steps are so correlated, the importance of identifying your buyer before you attract them with the right channels. As Sean's outlined, we've got to meet people where they're likely to be. That may be on LinkedIn for some of your buyers and Facebook for others. Some may not be on social at all. We have to be able to adapt, and that starts again with identifying through data. That informs the channels, and most importantly, it also informs the destination. What content should greet them and what content should come next? That will adjust depending on the segment, and in Sean's world, depending on the pod. John, we have unpacked your career journey, the buyer journey, interesting how they overlap. So now I'm going to ask you some questions that tie our entire conversation together. And the first one, you looking at 
you know, perhaps members of your 60 person marketing team and trying to pick that next CMO. What do you think the path is of a successful CMO of the future? Is it taking a specialty or is it being more of a generalist today? It's changing in the market. There's never a single path. It's changing. I encourage everybody to find the right path for themselves. Um, that's the easy answer. Mine has been highly unorthodox. Um, yours might be different. That's fair. So let's, let's dig into content. We just breezed over content in that last segment when you were talking about these pods and how each pod had its own focus and in turn needed different content. But for you, what is it about content today that ultimately feels personalized, feels tailored to you and gets you to click? Content has got to be about something for a specific persona and how it improves or helps their life. When that content speaks to you, it's helping you. It's not trying to sell you on what a business user or a technical user may say, this is marketing fluff. But it goes number of levels below the, the high-level messaging, and it's concrete, and it's clear. That's when content is meaningful, in my opinion. Interesting. So continuing on with that, you, you hit on this idea of helping you, which ultimately leads to the idea of personalization. And, and you talked a lot about that around this idea of a pod. What elements do you want to try and personalize in your opinion? And what elements do you want to keep broad enough so that even in your structure, different pods could leverage it? Yeah. I believe that the level of personalization is highest at the top of the funnel and becomes a little less and less actually as it goes to the bottom, which is contradictory in many ways. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't expect that. It's it's You wouldn't expect that. But my in my experience... The hardest part is getting the initial eyeballs. The hardest part is getting the initial interest. And the more personalized it is, the better it gets. But what you realize is as you get further and further down, it doesn't have to be anymore. Because look, if you bought an iPhone and you've considered an iPhone, how far is the leap that you might also buy AirPods? So do I have to sell you on the individual AirPod value proposition? Or you kind of bought in tangentially because you already ecosystemed your way into the iPod. So I think that that's very different than when you're on the top of the funnel where you might be coming in because you're just like, I want to buy the best AirPods in the world. Okay, well, if I talk to you about an iPhone up there in a general sense about Apple, you might not even consider it. So I got to tell you why my iPods, AirPods are the best ones in the world. And I think that's kind of a little bit how I think about it is, is that top of the funnel, more and more personalization, but you have uh, you have more levers to pull on and more, it, it can be a little bit more general as you get down to the bottom, especially because you've already bought into one thing, then it's easier to position the second and the third and the fourth. Interesting. No, it's very, very uh, great example too. I, uh, I've never thought about how when I watch those AirPod commercials, it all, it all revolves around something that I probably already have. And if not, I'm probably tuning in from that ad altogether. Sean, last question for you. Maybe this is the toughest one. Uh, as you balance being a CMO and being a CMO of a company that's now worth over a billion dollars, there's got to be demands. I, I know you're actually based in 20 countries. What was it? 22 languages that are spoken within your 600 plus people. 
how do you balance all of those pulling needs and your own family and your own personal well-being? Oh, um, I would say I was terrible at it. That is the honest truth and as candid as I can be. But I've gotten a tremendous amount better at it in the last, I would say, couple years, year. And it was really just a stark reminder because um, I had some deteriorating health issues, you know, a couple years ago that forced me to rethink. So if anybody's listening to this podcast to take this with you, your health is number one. Your health is number one. And your health is number one. And that means your mental health. It means your physical strength and health. And figure out where you draw energy from. And, and you just have to lock out time to draw that energy. Mine comes from my family. Mine comes from my kids. And I know that I need to spend that time with them and I enjoy them. Work will always be there tomorrow. If there's a set of problems that were on your desk at 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, whenever it is you stop working, you know, Trust me, nobody else will pick them up and solve. They'll be there 8 o'clock tomorrow morning uh, again. That's a mentality shift. And hopefully you don't need a reminder like I needed a reminder to do that. And that's what I implemented, a shift in mentality. Really, really separate your work environment from your family time. I don't take my laptop out of my office. I don't take my phone out of my office. I leave it right there. When I step outside, I'm home. And, and I'll start to recharge. I love that. And uh, I think that's spoken just as much as a, as a CMO, as an entrepreneurial CEO. Uh, and I think that balance is what people are looking for these days in organizations. And I, I appreciate you sharing that. Everything you've shared today has been so valuable, Sean. If, if you've tuned into this first episode with Sean as the first Marketer's Journey podcast, listen to many of the other episodes we have because everyone's story is a little bit different. And Sean had said it himself, no CMO is going to take the same journey as you create your own path. Hopefully you'll be on here to share it one day. Until next time, this is the Marketer's Journey podcast. You've been listening to the Marketer's Journey podcast. Big thanks to our sponsors at Uberflip, who help you fuel demand generation with content for an accelerated buyer journey. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, at uberflip.com slash podcast, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. 